Welcome to the Delight in the Limelight podcast. I'm your host, Linda Ugalow, speaking confidence coach and author of the book, Delight in the Limelight. I'm here to take you on a journey from the dread of public speaking to loving it instead. Before we get into the great episode I have for you today, I want to make sure you have my free checklist of speaking preparation rituals. Because getting ready to speak is more than practicing what you're going to say. It's about putting yourself into a state of body and mind to channel your best self. This free checklist includes the practices I use and recommend before speaking to ensure I'm clear-headed, grounded, warmed up, and focused. Download it at lindayugalo.com forward slash rituals. Okay, let's get on to the episode. Hello, everyone. This is the Delight in the Limelight live stream show, and I'm your host, Linda Ugalo. I'm a speaking confidence coach and author of the book, Delight in the Limelight. It's all about helping you to feel more comfortable, confident, and delighted in all the speaking that you do. And today we're going to be talking about how to feel better and more empowered around negotiation. And I've asked my colleague, Fotini Kanamopoulos, to join me for this conversation Fotini's a negotiation, communication, and persuasion expert, and she's the author of Say Less, Get More. She partners with business executives to help them create a competitive advantage and achieve their goals. She's also an instructor of the MBA negotiations at the Schulich School of Business in Toronto. So welcome, Fotini. Thank you so much for having me. I love this topic because I feel like personally, it's one of the areas where I know I've had some success and then there are other areas that I struggle. And if I know that there are some places that if I had to be in that position, I would really be in a panic. Can you speak to us about that feeling of of panic and fear that happens a lot for people around negotiations? Yeah. I mean, it's something that is completely human and natural because most people aren't crazy about the idea of conflict. And in our minds, we assume negotiation is going to be full of conflict. Otherwise, we would be in agreement and we wouldn't have to have this conversation. So the second your brain starts to get into, okay, there's potential conflict mode, there's a threat to my peace, to my well-being, to my ego of some kind, we go into what I like to refer to as the saber-toothed tiger moments. So back in our cave person ancestry, if we were faced with a physical threat of some kind, it could be a saber-toothed tiger or something else, we would go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And all the rational energy leaves our brains and it goes to our limbs. And that's what allows us to run like hell to get away from those saber-toothed tigers. But today, even though we're not faced with those same physical threats, we are faced with these intellectual threats like negotiation, like any of those stressful conversations that come up. And unfortunately, our physiology still works the same way. So we have that threat and all the rational energy leaves our brain and it goes to our limbs and our heart beats faster and our breathing gets more shallow and our palms get sweaty. And that's when we have those moments where you go, oh no, why did I just say that? I wish I could just take that back. Or afterwards, like five minutes later, you go, oh, this is what I should have said. Why didn't I think of it then? And it's because your brain just went into the saber two tiger mode. So what we want to do is try to find ways to cope with those moments. And I mean, the reason I named the book, Say Less, Get More, there's a million reasons, but one of them is just to take a moment of pause, of mental pause to go, okay, I thought this through or, okay, I just need a calming breath right now. Just give yourself a second to allow that rational energy to come back so that you don't say something you're going to regret so that you can say something with grace and with diplomacy intact that you're going to be proud of. 
so that you can make sure that you're not going to have any of that feeling of, oh God, I wish I hadn't done that um, later on. But it's that fear, anything that is going to threaten this, you know, well-being that we've, that we're seeking all around us, any disruption is going to cause a saber-toothed tiger moment like that. And negotiation, unfortunately, is just one of those things. I get to survey people all the time when I run workshops And there's two things that come up when I ask the question, what is your biggest fear in negotiation? And the two answers are, I fear leaving something on the table and I fear damaging relationships. And so those are some pretty hefty things that are coming up for us. And that, of course, is going to cause a major cause for those saber tooth tiger moments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's wonderful that you've asked those things. And I'm I'm glad to know them personally, because the way I work is that if there's something, if we're afraid of damaging a relationship, then I would ask my clients, well, where in the past did you feel a, a relationship was damaged? And and it's in like going back that we can clear that away. So it's really important to know exactly what's going on in our minds that is is getting triggered and that can uh, that can lead us back with a thread to where maybe the root cause is too. So that that's, you know, negotiations is a particular kind of communication. And um, and we unfortunately we don't come into it at, in a blank slate. We come into it with the experiences that we've had. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, we don't, Beautiful. it's not only the experiences that we've had, it's also the messages that are sent to us through societal yes. culture, through pop culture, through TV shows. Like yes. people go, when I first started telling people I was a negotiation consultant, I remember one person saying, Ooh, argue with me. I'm like, actually, that's not my job. My job <laughs> is the opposite is to, is to find resolution for people. But we have these preconceived notions that every negotiation is going to be this big battle. So of course there's this, this fear, this saber tooth tiger moment coming through all because because we assume that these things are happening because that's what we've been taught in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So talk to us instead what you see as negotiation, that it's not a conflict, but it's say more. I mean, it, if you look at the dictionary definition, it's just two people trying to reach an agreement. It's two people just having a conversation. And if you can approach it instead of in this fear mindset, if you can just be curious If you can say less for a second and go, how can I learn more about this person? How can I help them learn more about me? You know, I I talk to people all the time about um, often becoming what I call a victim of their own empathy as well. Because sometimes we go in there going, well, I'm in a serve, I'm in a service opportunity, whether I'm a salesperson or I run my own business or whatever it is I'm doing, I'm serving others. But that doesn't mean that you forget to serve yourself. And so either people go in there thinking, I need to get everything. And they go, I need to give them everything out of fear of damaging this relationship. And so it's just asking that curious question of what can I find out about this person? And to prevent yourself becoming this victim of empathy, then I also ask a really important question is, what can they afford to do for me? I'm not asking them to go bankrupt. I'm not asking them to do something well outside of their budget and so on. I'm simply asking this really curious question of what can they afford to do for me? And I'll ask myself the same question. What can I afford to do for them that is reasonable? And when you just ask that question, then all of a sudden it's not this combative conversation anymore. It's simply two people just trying to find an opportunity to serve one another, trying to reach an agreement. These are two big things I'd love to dive into a little bit. The first was uh, finding out more about people. Like what kinds of questions might, like can you give an example of a particular negotiating a set 
situation where, and what kind of questions might someone be asking to create that rapport? I mean, there's so many, well, when we talk, rapport is one thing that I, I feel like is important to, to isolate for a second, because too often people assume that a great negotiation is, you know, banging your fists on the table and being really demanding and being super assertive or aggressive. And that is really not the case. But you mentioned a key word, which is rapport. I just gave a lecture this weekend to a bunch of MBA students about salary negotiations. And the very first point we talked about was how rapport and conserving relationships is super important, especially if you're going to be talking about a, a salary negotiation where you're going to have to deal with these people over and over again, whether it's the hiring manager or the HR people or your colleagues or whatever it is, you're going to have to deal with these people. So you can't go in there like a bull in a China shop and assume that you're going to be able to work with these folks day in and day out for God knows how long. So it's finding where does that rapport come from? And often the mistake that people make is they assume that likability, that relationship building comes from giving people everything that they want. And if that was true, well, then I would be out of a job and nobody would be getting what they want ever because they'd be so worried about giving the other person everything that they want that where's the negotiation in that? So the mistake is assuming, well, I'll just, I'm just going to let them have their way because I don't want them to hate me, or I'll just let them have that next proposal. Or if you're dealing with children, I'll just let them have that extra cookie, stay up bedtime, like whatever that is. And then all you end up with is a bunch of spoiled children if they're constantly getting what they want without you getting anything for that. So it's the same, the same is true when it comes to negotiating with adults. If you just keep giving them everything that they want, the next time they're just going to keep asking for more. I see this happen in salary negotiations with employers. I see it happening in the corporate world when I get hired by organizations who need uh, help negotiating with big giant retailers. There are so many folks who will get themselves into a bad precedent by doing that. And so what we need to do is think about, well, where does likability actually come from? If it doesn't come from giving people everything that they want, according to persuasion theory, it comes from three things. It comes from having something in common. And it could be anything. It could be, oh, you love the color green? Me too. Or it could be, you did your MBA show like I did it there. Or you're Canadian? Me too. Anything that could be the teeny tiniest little bridge between you that that reduces some of the fear of the unknown. The next place is from genuine compliments. And I say genuine, and you know, those who have heard me speak live know that I tell this, this one all the time. If, if you came in here with bedhead today and I started complimenting you on your hair, you'd be going, what do you want from me, Fotini? Right? So it's got to be something genuine that pe- makes people, again, feel more comfortable with you. And the third place that likability comes from is from cooperative people. If you are going in with an attitude of curiosity, then you're going to be more likely to get people to want to work with you versus against you. If you're going, what's in it for this person and what can they afford to do for me? You're going to be able to flip that E in both directions, flip that empathy and go, what are they seeing as empathetic? How can I see what is going on with them right now? How can I make sure they see what I need out of this whole thing as well? And that's what starts this conversation versus assuming, let's go in there combative and demanding and make them give me everything that I want. Well, there's easier ways to do that versus the bull in a china shop method. So when you're talking about salary negotiations, you build up that rapport. When you have a new client, if you're on your own business or you are selling on behalf of somebody else, you build that rapport that makes them go, I want to deal with this person versus 
How do I find a way to deal with anybody else but this individual that's in front of me right now? That for me is one of the big cornerstones of negotiation because too often people assume they can just get away with, you know, I can, you might be able in the short term to get away with this build a China shop approach, but that's not a long-term thing. If you do it once, people are going to be looking for ways to work around you next time. It's the whole reason why my entire business exists today. I quit a job that just wasn't serving me anymore. And then clients started calling up and going, Hey, Fotini, when are you going to come back and work with us? So I was helping them on um, consulting on large negotiations and training their teams and so on. And I said, well, I don't work for that company anymore. I'm sorry. That's not who that's not, I'm not part of their schedule anymore. And they said, we didn't hire the company. We hired Fotini. We like working with you. So my entire business exists because I built rapport with them because I was listening to them because I was curious about them and they wanted to find ways to continue working with me as well. And so there are ways to do that, but it's not by just giving people everything that they want. It is by building that relationship. And it's, it's also not falling off the deep end and assuming that you're going to go on vacation with these people and you're going to invite them to your wedding. Like it's just enough rapport that they want to deal with you again. It doesn't mean they have to be your best friend at the end of this negotiation either. Wow. So much there. You know, I think this is such a, a reframing and, and shift about negotiation. And I think that as people, I mean, it's one thing to hear the words, of course, and, and get the idea. And it's another to put it into practice. So you, so you said uh, before you were talking about being curious and asking questions. Mm-hmm. So, and you, you gave us some ideas about creating commonality or giving a compliment or whatever to create that kind of relationship. And then you also talked about the idea of what can you afford to give me? And that's part of the negotiation as well. And I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit. And also from the angle of, I mean, when I think about what one of the things that might make it hard for people, let's say to ask for a salary raise or a promotion or or anything really, is that they don't feel maybe deserving of receiving or they're not used to receiving. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you have on that? Yeah. So I, I was just telling my students this weekend that whenever you're going in for any type of negotiation, it's a good idea, of course, to be prepared to do be well-researched. So if we're talking salaries specifically or any other type of negotiation. It's going, what is the norm? What is the standard? What is average? And so on. But then when you look at those numbers, then you have to ask yourself, am I average? Would they be talking to me today if I was average? If I am applying for a job and there's a pile of 500 resumes and you go, but they could just choose anybody. They have 500 other people who are lined up to do this, but they chose you. You made it to the top of that pile. They're talking to you for a reason. I worked in the corporate world and I was in meetings all the time with Walmart, with Walmart buyers on a regular basis. And then I, I flipped and went into the consulting world and started training Walmart buyers. I'm aware of their schedules and how ridiculous their schedules are and waiting to try and get in for two weeks to have one meeting with them. If you were not important to them, they wouldn't be making the time for you. And that attitude is incredibly important in making sure that you recognize the value that you bring. They are talking to you for a reason. Time is our most precious commodity right now. Uh, And so if they are making the time for you, it means you made it there for a reason. So even with my MBA students, I tell them, if you have, you know, found all these average salaries and then you ask yourself, am I average? You wouldn't be, you wouldn't have come this far if you were just average. So I tell them to add what I call the not average tax. 
So take that research and then add the tax for making sure that you stand out above the crowd. Now you've got to be credible and making sure you present yourself as such. So I even tell them, you know, have a feel good folder. Anytime someone sings your praises, anytime someone says thank you, anytime you have a big win of some kind, you're going to put it in that folder so that when the time comes, not only can you look at that and boost your own confidence, but you have credible third party information that you can speak to without sounding like you're gloating, without sounding like you're being arrogant and so on. These are other people's words, not your own opinion. It's much more credible that way to be able to say, hey, the client had wonderful things to say about the project that we worked on. Or my my boss said these that this project was one of the best he'd ever seen, as opposed to, I know I did the best work ever in this organization. That can come off as arrogant. It may be true, but it may come off as arrogant. But when you have that credible third party, when you're collecting all of these bits of data in your feel-good folder, not only will you now recognize that I am more than average, but you're going to be able to articulate that in a, an objective and non-arrogant way to somebody else. What a great suggestion. You know, everyone needs that uh, place where they can first, as you say, for themselves to boost their own confidence, which is really the, the higher potential of that individual, you know, that, that yeah. it reflects. And also that you can then find a way of expressing your your credibility factors in a way that doesn't feel braggadocious because I know that people are afraid of that too. Mm -hmm. So this is a wonderful workaround for that. I also um, was thinking, and I'm curious what you, what your thoughts on this is that when we are in front of other people, we are there to serve mm -hmm. and to contribute and that's really what, why we're in a job is, I mean, yes, we're there to make money and to hopefully enjoy the process, but we're there to contribute and make a contribution, which is a kind of a service. And I wonder what you think about that in the kind of the mindset of the negotiation process. I do think it helps. I mean, if you can go in there and like I tell people all the time, I meet folks all, you need to go into a negotiation and know what you want to get out of it right? You can't go in there and just assume things will work out for you. You need to be, you need to have a strategy and you need to have a plan. So you're going to go in there well-researched. You're going to know what you're going to be asking for. You're going to have thought about in advance, what can they afford to do for me? But then you're also going to have to think about it from the other person's perspective and go, what's in it for them? If you are not thinking about the other person's perspective, why in the hell should they listen to you? Why should they care about anything that you have to say? Because everybody's looking out for their own interests. You're looking out for yours. But you, if you don't consider theirs, if you don't frame things in a way that's going to be appealing to them or interesting to them or valuable to them, you're not going to get very far. Great leaders know how to get people to follow them. Well, if you want people to follow your ideas, if you want people to follow along with your proposals, then you're going to have to give them a reason to want to do that. And that starts with thinking about things from their perspective, by thinking, how does this serve them? How does this help them achieve their goals in some way? And you might be going, but how does giving them, giving me all their money help them achieve their goals? But it's because you are providing something that's going to give them that much value or more. How can you help them see that value? How can you articulate that value? Well, it starts with understanding what is valuable to them in the first place. So it's an often overlooked piece for those folks who really love competitive negotiations where it's like talking about money and they want to go in there ready, ready for battle. They often overlook this piece of 
Why should they want to deal with you? Why should they want this product or service that you're offering? If you don't know what's in it for them, you're going to be, you might be offering something that's completely useless or garbage. You might be missing the mark entirely. And then how does that make you a great salesperson? How does that help you serve others? So it's really important to, to pause and ask that question, to pause, say less for a second and go, what's in it for them? Why are they sitting in front of me right now? Sure, they need me, but why? What's what's important for them right now? It's finding that balance of understanding what are your needs and what are their needs that's going to get you to a, a next level place when it comes to negotiating outcomes. I you, you use the word pause a lot. You've used it a lot in the book. Um, talk and of obviously the say less, get more implies a pause. Can you speak about like the power of the pause and and the ways what you're doing in that pause? So I I talk a lot about finding what I call your mental pause button. And the origin story of that was I was doing a lot of consulting and working with a lot of the same clients over and over. And I was down in Arkansas with one particular client and I was constantly in this person's office and chatting about them. And she was this brilliant woman who was great strategy, a a beautiful mind for what she was doing and supply chain and so on. And then when the big client would call, it's almost like she would just fall apart. And I was like, what, what happened to this person who had this amazing strategy a second ago? And she was like, I don't know. I just get so nervous when that phone rings. And we ended up, I, we talked about, you know, pausing for a second, taking a deep breath, finding a moment of Zen before opening your mouth, before committing to something, before you know what it's, what you're committing to. And I ended up Googling a pause button, like the Staples easy button. And we printed it out right then and there in the office and stuck it on her bulletin board. And I was like, I want you to look at this every single time the phone rings, just take a breath, just take a breath and know that you've got this. And a few years later, after I hadn't been working with her for a while, I happened to pop into the office and I went to say hello. And she was pointing, she pointed to the bowling board. She goes, that is still sitting there to this day. And boy, does it help. And so I created one of my own that I even put on little cards. I hand them out at speaking events. I hand them out in my MBA classes. And I meet people all the time who have it sitting in their wallets or who have it as their screensaver. One of my students once told me, he's like, I even have it on my nightstand. I go, why the nightstand? He goes, now I don't get into arguments with my wife. <laughs> and so it's... It's about finding that moment of Zen, of clarity, of allowing that rational thought to come back in before you have that saber-toothed tiger moment, before you say something that you're going to regret. If you could just pause for a second to just think through or not, not, don't think at all, just take a breath and allow your brain to calm down, get rid of some of the noise, I guarantee you what comes out of your mouth next is going to be Um, much more valuable and is going to have a lot less regret. People often also worry when it comes to saying nothing, when it comes to being quiet, they worry, what if I look stupid? So we tend to fill the void. We get really nervous and we fill all the silence. But if you're constantly filling all the silence, how are you going to learn? Where's the space to be curious? Where's the space to understand what is valuable to them? And so if you can just take that moment of pause, I guarantee instead of looking stupid, you can even frame it and say something like, I need a moment to think about that. Or I'm just going to write that down. And you're buying your brain some time to think. And you're also sending the message that I care about you. I care about what you have to say. Whatever comes out of my mouth is going to be considered, which means I'm not just rambling and and not listening to you and steamrolling you. Um, I want to listen to what you're saying. If I say I'm going to write that down, the other person across from me is going to be going, oh, 
great. They're really paying attention to me. They're going to feel more acknowledged. So it's also a way to build trust. It's buying yourself some time to think. It's making you look more credible. It's giving yourself a, a, a prevention of that, that moment of regret. And at the same time, you're building trust and credibility with the person across from you. I mean, and it's such a simple action to do. Difficult for many, but once you get into the habit of it, once you find that coping mechanism, it's much easier to find that mental pause button over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And you know, anyone who's listening or watching this, take a mental pause right now, let your body relax. Because the more we practice it, the more we can access it in those those higher stake moments. Yeah. I'd like to uh, move to something else you said in the book about never splitting the difference. Yeah. So there's another book that, that made uh, with a title like that, that made the line famous. And it's something we've, we've known in negotiation. It's a common tactic, right? So if let's say you're going to uh, buy a used car and you say, I, they say it costs 15,000 and you say, I only have uh, 5,000 and they go, well, let's split the difference at 10,000. If they are offering to split the difference with you, no one voluntarily goes, I'm happy to come down $5,000 just like that. The reason they are willing to split the difference is because they open so ridiculously extreme. They open so high that they gave themselves room to move down significantly and still get a phenomenal deal out of it. No one offers up something like that without knowing I'm getting a great deal. So when you hear language like, let's split the difference or let's meet in the middle, it's an artificial middle because they've dragged the range so far away. They've opened so extreme that it should be a big red flag to go, that opener was not credible they likely have more room to go. If they are willing to split the difference, if they're willing to meet me in the quote unquote middle, that probably means there's more room for them. They can afford to go even further. That's what that language signals. Another element that you speak about in the book is resistant points. Are those two things related? They are. So a resistance point, also known as a break point in common language is, you know, where's my walkaway point? At what point am I going... I can't go any higher or lower. It's just not in my interest to do business anymore. The unfortunate thing is too many people go in with that number on their mind. I meet people, bright, intelligent, experienced people all the time in the corporate world who will go, well, I just need to get this amount of money. Well, that's a must have. That's not the, you know, let's go for even higher than that. That's it. That's I'm not going to lose my job number or I'm not going to go bankrupt number, but that's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for higher than that. So we, what the question we have to ask ourselves is not only what is the minimum that I need to get here, but what can they afford to do for me? So I want you to take your focus and put it on what you think their resistance point is. What is their break point? What is the point at which they go, I can still afford this, but any more than that, and I'm going to walk away. And that's usually when people start to go, okay, if I think they can afford 5,000, or I think they can, afford, they can afford, let's go with an easy number. If I think they can afford to go as low as 10,000, then I'm going to open even lower than that. I'm going to do something called opening extreme so that when the time comes, I look reasonable when I move from 5,000 to 10,000. I look like, well, I'm working so hard. Boy, did you get this all out of me? And people feel so satisfied for the same reason that if, you know, if someone compliments me on my, on my shoes or my coat or something like that, the first thing I want to do is go, I got it on sale. You know, we're so proud of ourselves for getting a deal, right? That's the level of satisfaction people want to feel at the end of every negotiation. If you open with a number and you never move from that number, 
they're not going to feel very satisfied. But if you open at a number and then go, okay, you squeezed a little bit more out of me. I'm willing to go to this number. You are focused on their resistance point. They're going to be so satisfied by going all the way to, to where they said, okay, I can't go any further than that. They're going to go to their maximum or their minimum and feel good about it because you went as far as opening extreme. And that all happens because you remove your focus from your resistance point and you put it on their resistance point. You ask that all important question, what can they afford to do for me? But it's too often we go in there with this very tunnel visioned approach to, I just need to do this much to not lose my job or to not lose my business or whatever that might look like. So what are people losing by not negotiating well? Well, I mean, if you think about it, when in life is the bare minimum pleasant, right? When do we want to just go through life coasting and getting the absolute bare minimum? I think anybody who's interested in your podcast is going to be going, uh, I want more, right? I want, I'm an overachiever or I want something more in my life. So why are we skating by, by just doing the bare minimum? I have worked with organizations where I just, I've asked them something like, can you just increase by half a percent? Do you think you could ask the client for half a percent more? And for some, it could be a few hundred dollars. For some, it could be a few thousand dollars. A half a percent doesn't sound that daunting, but a half a percent on your mortgage these days, boy, does that go a long way. A half a percent interest on your savings account, you know, all of those things, those dollars, those half percentages add up. And so that's what we want to be doing is those little tiny bits and pieces that add up over the course of a lifetime. Um, that's what I don't want to be overlooking. There was a there was a really fascinating study that was done on uh, folks who were coming out of school and negotiating their first job offers. And what they found was, this was about 20 years ago, only 7% of women negotiated their first salary, whereas 57% of men did. So not all of the men were, but certainly more of them than women were. And then they found that those who did negotiate managed to increase their offers by an average, I believe, of 7.4%. And you might think, okay, well, that doesn't sound like a ton of money if you're especially just starting out and maybe it's a few hundred dollars uh, a month or something like that, maybe even less than that. Um, But I had one friend say to me, she goes, that's diapers for my kid. Um, That's my vacation. That's over the course of a year, a free month of rent. All of that could seem like a lot to some person. But then they took that study a step further and they went, well, let's compare. Let's compare the person who did negotiate and the person who didn't in that one first only singular negotiation. And let's give them the same salary increases for the next 35 years, the same promotions, no other difference except for the first negotiation. And what they found was that person who negotiated their first salary, that 7.4% now gets to retire eight years earlier. Wow. (sighs) When you think about why should we go in for more than just that bare minimum, I think eight years of retirement is a pretty compelling reason to do that. Very compelling reason. Right. And I look at it and go, well, I didn't just negotiate my first salary. I mean, that was when I was 12. That was, I, it was negotiating my second, my third, and a whole bunch more promotions, all of that kind of stuff. And so I estimate conservatively that I've, I've managed to get over 20 years of early retirement. And I might trade that in for a bigger home or a nicer car or vacations or whatever. But I now have all of those options all because I wasn't just going for the bare minimum. Yeah. So important. So important. Now, one of the things that you speak about uh, in the book is the issue for people who whose English is their second language or their third or their fourth. And a lot of people feel at a disadvantage because they don't feel like people, you know, they might have an accent or their English may not be perfect. What do you have to say? 
So I can remember the very first time I ran a workshop in Greek. I was in Athens. I was asked to run this workshop in Greek. I have a very confusing last name for many people, but it is not a language that comes totally naturally to me. And so I was up late in my hotel room practicing for the next day. I had my you know, dictionary handy um, and looking up every other word. I had gone through my PowerPoint presentation with my mother, whose first language is Greek. And I had made sure that I understood everything, but it was still really daunting to me. And I knew the second I opened my mouth, these eight people people uh, who were clearly born and raised in this country weren't going to, were going to be able to pick up on my accent right away. They were going to know that this person is clearly not one of us. And I was super worried about that. And so when I walked into that room, one of the first things I said to them was, as you can tell, Greek is not my first language or not my most comfortable language. If you prefer, I can do this in English or in French, or I have a bit of conversational Spanish. Which one of these, would you prefer I do it in, in English or would you prefer I do it in Greek? And of course you can see the look of shock on their faces like, no, 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 no English for us. And I said, if there's a time where I, you know, I have an issue with a word or something is not coming out right, just flag me down. I owned that moment instead of allowing it to own me or instead of allowing them to own me by showing them, hey, I am here in front of the room. I have lots of abilities and I can do this. I know the reverse is not true. I didn't say it in an arrogant way to them, but um, clearly I'm here and able to do this. And that's a unique ability. The people, if you, if English is not your first language, then that means that you have a second language. That's more than most people can do. <laughs> um, and that's pretty freaking incredible. And what that also means is, I want you to make sure you are pressing that pause button over and over and over again. You can say, I need a minute to make sure this comes out in a way that it, that is intended. I need a moment to make sure that I'm getting the words right here. And take that time to do that little translation in your brain if necessary. Ask question and ask, say, is this the word for, you know, describe what it is that you're trying to talk about? Ask a question every once in a while and just say, did that make sense to make sure that you're on the same page, to be curious about that person and go, are they with me? Are we understanding one another? You can ask for these moments of clarity along the way. You can be in charge of this moment without feeling like you're a victim of English as a second language. You can say, I have an ability that very few people have, and I'm going to own that moment. And I can tell you when I was in Greece doing this for the first time in a second language, um, boy, did I speak a lot slower than I usually do. And that was actually a great thing for me. It forced me to pause. It forced me to think through what I was going to say instead of doing this dangerous thinking and talking at the same time thing. So doing something in your second language can actually be a massive asset versus getting trapped in the nervousness of rambling that many people in their first language will do. So it can be a huge asset instead of a disadvantage. So, so helpful to switch around that feeling of shame of not being perfect into an actual asset because it allows you, number one, to become relatable by, by owning it, as you say, and by giving yourself the, that pause and by creating relationship, by needing to ask, by, by having the opportunity to ask a question, did you get that? Or was that understandable? Is this the right word? You know, like to, it, it, um, builds your, the closeness, the rapport, but through the actual, what some people might see as a disadvantage of not speaking perfectly to having it be a plus. I mean, that, that mindset shift mm -hmm. 
can be so incredible for efficiency, for productivity, for the outcomes that you get. There was a really cool study that was done on fear in negotiation. And in the study, they made people watch the movie Psycho. And then they looked at the control group who hadn't watched it and those who had watched the movie. And what they found was those who just looked in addition to just feeling anxious, got deals that were 12% less financially attractive. So by just going, I feel okay about this. I feel good about this versus allowing your fear to take over and go, what if they think poorly of me? What if they think I'm stupid? No, you're going to change that. You're going to make them understand how smart you are by having a second language. That's going to not only change their perception of you, but your perception of yourself and your outcomes as a result. So it can have an, that confidence can have an incredible impact. Yeah, this relates to really anyone though, because what we need to do is accept and honor ourselves just for who we are. Yeah. Because we're all unique. We all express ourselves differently. We we have different skills and and natural abilities and nobody can replace us. So as much as we can be our staunchest ally, the better that we can... Uh, enjoy the relating that we do and invite other people in. There was, um, there was an interesting stat that I saw once about how women negotiate harder for others than they will for themselves. Mm. And I wasn't at all surprised by that. And so I started asking the women in my audiences, because I do a lot of women's events because it's such a, it's such an important skill to make sure we level the playing field. But I started asking them, if you were to go to bat for someone, how would you do it? And they would go, I would do this, 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 and this. And I said, okay, now what if that other person you're going to bat for is yourself? Why would you do any less for yourself than you would for others? Why are you less deserving than others might be? So what if we, you know, looked in the mirror and went, this person deserves as much of our effort um, as everybody else around me does. And I think that is such an incredible message that people get from you, that they have a message to share with people. People want to listen to them, but you've got to believe that you have something that people want to listen to as well. It's a powerful reckoning that we can do for ourselves to just contemplate that or open a journal and and ask that, figure out what's behind it. Yeah. Fotini, you're brilliant. So helpful. (laughs) I could listen to you all day, but we don't have all day. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. And I also want to, um, you have, tell us about this quiz. So one of the best ways to become a better negotiator or a better communicator is to understand what is your style. So the more self-aware you are, the more uh, the more you'll understand the pros and the cons and the watchouts and the things that you want to keep doing to make sure that you're knocking it out of the park. So I created this negotiation style assessment and you can find it at fotiniicon.com slash quiz. Um, and so there's pros and cons to all of them. There's no bad style, but it's great to know your own and know what are my watchouts and what are the things that I could continue to do even better. So the more aware you are, the better negotiator you're going to be. So fantastic. And FotiniCon.com. Is that your Fotini icon? Yeah, just the first part of my last name so people don't have to remember Fotini how to spell all icon. of it. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. FotiniIcon.com. Awesome. Also, if you haven't yet read Fotini's book, Say Less, Get More, you got to get a copy. It's fantastic. It'll change the way you negotiate. I hope you enjoyed this and we're both wishing you Delight in the Limelight. Thank you for listening to Delight in the Limelight. 
I hope you feel a little more hopeful and excited about speaking in public. If you like the show, recommend it to someone you know. And if you haven't yet read the book, Delight in the Limelight, you can get it online or at your favorite bookstore or request it from your local library. Remember, speaking is our human design. Let's learn to delight in it together.